นโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะIn what can be called actuality or dhamma, that which is actually true, there's that which appears to be true. You know, like when you're young, you appear to always have lots of energy, and it's always going to be that way. And and then a few decades down the line, you get you know in touch with the actuality, which is that wasn't a permanent condition. Energy is fading and. So, as a spiritual discipline, I think this is something that's really worth cultivating. You know, to 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 make something of this, to hold this up, and and remember it when we when we start to struggle or we're getting caught up in something. To just bring this to heart, to bring this to mind, and say, you know, is this? Actuality is this the truth? Is this reality that I'm seeing here, or is this just the way things appear to be? Mm. You know, like the moods that we get in. You know, you get into a good mood. You, whatever conditions conspire to make you feel just great about life and great about the Dharma and great about yourself, and you've got energy and enthusiasm, and we can assume. That it's always going to be that way, and we probably don't have the inclination to stop and reflect on impermanence when we're having a good time. But when things do change, and we're disillusioned, and we're feeling despair and disappointment, discomfort, discontentment, that also can appear like it's always going to be that way. Well, maybe that is the time where we need to stop and and really bring to heart, bring to mind. This is the way it appears to be. It appears to be this way. It doesn't mean to say it actually is. And really, to really make something out of this, this, this reflection, of apparent reality and actuality. Earlier, I was considering this theme, and I was reminded of a—I um, don't know why—but it came to my mind a, 
a Dhamma talk that Ajahn Jayasara gave, and probably quite a few of you are familiar with listening to Ajahn Jayasara Dhamma talks. And on this occasion, he was talking to the uh, the junior monks and novices and anagarikas at Watnanachat, and he was pointing out how that uh, in the spiritual community, when you're living in the monastic life, you know, don't be fooled by how you feel about some of the people you live with. You know, there might be you know, the guy sitting right next to you you, you take a distinct disliking to. You know, just everything he does irritates you. The way he eats, the way he breathes during meditation. And you've got to sit next to this guy every day. Our community, as you will have observed, is hierarchical and it's not negotiable. It's all determined by when you were ordained as a monk and you can't say, well, I don't like sitting next to that guy. I want to sit next to that one. It doesn't work like that. But don't be fooled by that because sometimes it, it turns out that you know, it just happens that even this person who you thought was you know, really thoroughly irritating and you could never learn to like, to put up with, Ajahn Jayasara was saying, well, actually, sometimes it turns out he becomes your best friend for life. And you don't want to be fooled by the way things appear to be. And now, this is not just a modern disorder or dysfunction that we're suffering from in the scriptures. You can read how there's a, there's a particular story where the Buddha found out that there was a, um, one of his monks who was a fully awakened arahant was upsetting all the local people. He apparently had a very, um, he had a pretty obnoxious personality, this character, and speak in a very patronizing, demeaning way to the lay people. His speech was coarse and unattractive and, and uh, thoroughly fed up. The lay people were bad-mouthing him, basically, and, but they didn't realize this guy was fully in line, perfectly free from all conceited ignorance, and uh, that's not come you want to cultivate. You don't want to be bad-mouthing awakened beings. And so the Buddha, out of compassion for these people, went over and pointed out and said, well, on the outside, this, this, this fellow really doesn't have a very attractive personality. That's true, and there are causes for it. In many, many past lives, he's been a, a, a high-class Brahmin, and he's just developed this character tendency where he speaks down to everybody. That's just a, an innocuous tendency that he has. But on the heart level, he's pure. You can't always tell. We can't always tell on the outside. We we have these assumptions about the way somebody appears to be, and we cling to that, and then we start projecting accordingly. Oh, he's he's a hopeless case. Or, you know, sometimes I know it happens in the monastery that people will comment to me about, oh, such and such a monk or novice, he doesn't look very inspiring. He's really depressed-looking character. And well, I just happen to know that he is very inspiring. I don't necessarily say so, but I know that he's going through something. But he's going through it consciously. Now, on the outside, yeah, you can't tell. Maybe this person might look grumpy or depressed or hopeless. But on the inside, we don't necessarily know what somebody's going through. And so, it's wise. It's skillful to, and this works in any position in life, to not assume too much about the way things appear to be. We do tend to assume too much because of our materialistic way of thinking. 
until there's wisdom, until there's real profound insight, we project according to what we like and what we dislike. You know, the way things appear to be, if they're beautiful, we just, it's good. If it looks good, we think it is good. If it looks bad, we think it is bad. Now, by this stage of life, all of us will have already come to know that's just not the case. And yet we, even though on some level, intellectually, we know that's true, we don't really know, and our heart leaps out and we project our heart energy onto these outer objects and we start assuming all sorts of things about them. You might have, those of you that have read accounts of uh, Ajahn Chah's life might have come across that incident that is reported uh, where some young um, uh, Western disciple took it upon himself to offer Ajahn Chah a reflection. He, uh, he um, you know, probably educated, and that's the cool thing to do, just to speak your mind to, to people. If you see their faults, you point them out to them. <laughs> so this uh, fellow went to see Ajahn Chah and, um, and told him, he said, well, I've been watching you, and I just want to let you know that uh, you don't look like an enlightened person to me. Ajahn Chah <laughs> responded, he said, well, that's very good. It's very good that, you, that you're saying that because if you're looking on the outside, if you think you can recognize the state of enlightenment by looking on the outside, you're looking in the wrong place. You don't realize the reality of enlightened consciousness by looking outside yourself. But the unawakened personality, the unawakened character, when awareness is not, matured, is not grounded, is not expanded, is not awakened, then that's what we do. We assume we can tell by the way things appear to be. And we actually end up betraying ourselves. So sooner or later, hopefully sooner in our practice, we want to get this message that the views we hold uh, are not to be clung to. Can we hold our views lightly? We're not talking about getting rid of views and opinions. We're not talking about somebody who doesn't have views and opinions on anything. But how do we hold our views? Do we hold them in a way that hurts people? You know, we can do that. Yeah, it's fine to have views and opinions, but do we project them in a way whereby we cause hurt and harm to others? And in so doing, the karma we accumulate causes hurt and harm to ourselves. Now, can we be there when we're uh, getting caught up in our assumptions about reality? Some years ago now, I can remember how um, we were uh, printing various books of Ajahn Sumedho's talks. And, of course, these days the bookshelves are are caving under the weight of all the publications that are produced and you know, perhaps there's even too many but this is talking about a few years ago when there weren't so many around and, and it was more or less just starting to become common that there were these Dhamma books or transcribed talks of the teachers and so Ajahn Sumedha's talks had some of them had been put into print and they were being spread around the world and I remember being at this gathering in Thailand where we had uh, all the senior monks gathered together and uh, there was a kind of a sharing period where we were checking in with each other and 
And one of these junior terrors from another monastery on the other side of the planet took it upon himself, you know, not dissimilar from the one who offered Ajahn Chah uh, some helpful reminders, some pointers. Uh, this guy really challenged Ajahn Sumato and really called him to account and said, well, I think what you're teaching is wrong view. And, and the way he did it was, was um, less than polite and friendly and, and uh, certainly very confrontational. But, you know, like a lot of us, he really felt very confident in his view and felt this was the responsible thing to do, to point out Ajahn Sumato's flaws and, and really told him. And unfortunately, Ajahn Sumato didn't say very much and so it didn't amount to very much at the time. But... Uh, <laughs> Some years later, uh, Ajahn Sumedha shared with me how, um, well, it may have been a group of us, I don't remember now, but he was sharing with us how he received a letter from this, this monk who had often reflection and how he, he was now the abbot of a monastery and uh, he wanted to apologize to Ajahn Sumedha for for the way he had spoken to him. And... Um, and fortunately, he had realized that, you know, these views that we hold, even though we can be very impassioned by them, and they appear to be you know, world-shatteringly important, have we developed what the Buddha referred to as sangwar indriya, or the restraint of the senses? You know, you know, sometimes, particularly we Theravadans, we get accused of being hung up and repressed, and, and we lack creativity and spontaneity and all the rest of it. Well, maybe we're developing what the Buddha suggested, the Sangwara India, the restraint. Restraint of the senses, Sangwara India, is a spiritual muscle. That you don't just do it by sitting meditation for a few minutes or a few hours or even a few weeks. You know, but for weeks, for months, for years, we exercise this restraining the mind, pulling the attention back, restraining our effort to reach out with the body to send the energy out through our eyes and throughout our ears, holding, containing, building the energy up, restraining the heart energy, not just sending it out all the time. This, is, this heart energy is needed if we want transformation. If we want the structures of delusion to be transformed, which presumably we all do, we've got to build up tremendous energy and restraint is one of the faculties that the Buddha pointed to as essential and and so with regards to projecting our views and believing in the way things appear to be, even when things appear really convincing, you know, I think it's a, a useful rule of thumb and I'm, I'm thankful to, I think it was uh, the Zen nun, Kenneth Roshi, in one of her books, when very early on in my life as a monk, I, I read where she pointed out how if you can't choose to not say it, or to say it, if you can't choose, then consider it compulsive. Hmm? Now, it might be what we need to say, you know, offering this personal reflection, it might be what we want to say, which is different from need to say, it might be what we want to say is accurate, it might even be useful, but maybe it's not. Can we choose to not say it? Can we choose to not act? If we can't choose to not act, well, then maybe we should consider that it's compulsive. Hmm? And then, re, you know, you'd make by way of experiment, not by way of judgment. You know. Feeling judged is, is, is painful, very, very painful. You know. So 
We're not talking about inhibiting our ability to have judgments or views and opinions, but experimenting with the capacity, cultivating the capacity to contain the exuberance and the enthusiasm until we feel ready to speak carefully and mindfully. I can, uh, again, in terms of examples of this, I I certainly can uh, reflect, and perhaps some of you can as well, on how we treated our parents when we were younger. Yeah, adolescent behavior, that's what it is, that untamed exuberance and the things that I said, even regrettably past adolescence, the things that I, I projected onto my parents. And Fortunately, as the years go by, one learns that, well, the views that we have of our parents can change. And I'm uh, certainly pleased that the views that I had of my parents changed. And I, uh, some of you will have heard that my mother passed away uh, last month and and my, um, by the time she passed away, I'm happy to say that our relationship was very amicable and the last few telephone conversations we had were really beautiful and it's a, it's a very gentle and lovely memory to, to be able to hold of how we both, I think, learned to let go of something that was causing both of us a lot of suffering. I can remember one of the conversations where she was... You know, what she wanted to ask was, she said, well, are you smiling enough, darling? It's very good for you to smile, you know. It's good for you and it's good for other people as well. And, and at the time I thought, well, that's, that's a different sort of conversation we're having. We didn't used to have that kind of conversation. And, and then it might have been even the very last conversation we had, but certainly one of the last conversations she had, we had whereby she just said, it's so lovely to hear from you and... I wish we could speak more often, and and of course I could ring you. It's not your fault. You you know it's not that I expect you to ring. I could ring you, and I I was really taken aback by this. So again, this is not the normal conversation that my mother and I would have, and and I'm very pleased we got to this this place together. And and also I must say it demonstrates some agility of how my mother holds views. You know, it was my the characteristic of my relationship with both my parents, well, in fact, all of my family, is one of being judged. I'm not the real deal. I'm a failure. I'm, you know, that, like that black sheep out in the field there I, I'm rather fond of. You know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's how I feel in our family, you know, always being judged from people who have a particularly passionate religious persuasion, which is very different from mine, and uh, they don't seem to recognize the validity of mine in, in, to any degree at all. And that, uh, that's painful. That hurts. But even when we feel judged by other people who disagree with us, and then maybe the view comes up, the assum- assumption comes up that they are wrong and I'm right, this is what leads to arguments, isn't it? They're wrong and I'm right. Yeah, and we, we cling to that so easily. We cling that we feel great. We get energized by that. We feel really good about being right. I think this is particularly a bloke thing anyway. You know, maybe women are a little more agile and subtle about these things, but certainly you know, a lot of men that I know are into this one-upmanship big time. It's, um, you know, probably I'm pretty good at it as well. And they, we're always trying to be right. And where's, where's that going? Does that really lead 
to harmony? Does it lead to something beautiful? And where does it come from? It comes from believing in the way things appear to be. Like, for instance, if I lose this argument, that's a sign of weakness. In reality, in actuality, if we can't lose, then we're weak. The apparent reality is I've got to win all the time. Actuality is you can't win all the time. Sometimes for sure you're going to lose. And so from a perspective of our commitment to actuality, we train ourselves to lose. In other words, we turn our view around. Now this ability to turn our views around is a training. Again, it's not going to happen just because we sit meditation for a few minutes or a few weeks, uh, a few months, or even one or two years. This can be... This is training that takes commitment and, and maybe many years. But hopefully we do start to get a feeling for how we can loosen our hold on views and, and not be so committed to the way things appear to be. Now, again, everybody here will already to some degree have some familiarity and confidence and, and uh, formal practice and, and recognize the value of meditation. This kind of conversation we're having, if uh, we don't have a, a sense, if we don't have an appreciation for how through right training we can cultivate a subtlety of appreciation of our inner terrain, that learning to read our own hearts, learning to read our own minds, it's a, it's a subtle skill. Mm-hmm. We can all remember, if we cast our minds back, who, or certainly looking at other children and learning to read, they can't read. It's quite a, an amazing feat of the, the human brain to be able to translate these little black squiggles on a piece of paper into meaning and then we can do it quite fast and and after a while we've got the ability to read and maybe you know we've got the ability to read a Harry Potter movie well that's not a very advanced level of reading and we can then get more skilled at our capacity for reading and and get very skilled maybe some of us better than others well the same principle applies inwardly Learning to read our own hearts, learning to read our own minds is a skill that's worth cultivating and that's uh, what form of meditation is about. Uh, The the gathering at the meal this morning, I was speaking about sometimes the spiritual uh, activities are aimed towards just cultivating well-being, generating that sense of being equipped with goodness, our storehouse of goodness. It's really important as we as we go forward in our, on the spiritual journey and deal with all the apparent obstructions and challenges that we inevitably come across, that we have a reservoir of, of well-being. We know how to tap into goodness and well-being. If we start out on this journey, we're not going to get very far before we'll feel thoroughly depleted and exhausted if we don't know how to access a storehouse of well-being. Learning how to build up that storehouse of well-being through cultivating our precepts, developing integrity, generating a sense of generosity and patience and kindness and forgiveness. All of these virtues contribute to building up this storehouse of goodness and well-being. 
But that's only part of the story. You know, having access to a sense of good feelings and well-being, and on that level, that's not all there is to it. There's a point to this, which is you know, generating that momentum, generating that story of goodness, is so we can do the work of seeing through the way things appear to be to the way things actually are, to dissolving the apparent reality and realising actuality. And it takes, takes effort, takes consistency and a tremendous amount of work. And if we can't do this work on a subtle level, then we're very disadvantaged. We all understand daily life practice, you know, what it means to be mindful in daily life, but this practice is enhanced if we also uh, take it to the next level and, and develop a... Uh, a subtlety of the discipline of attention so that we can learn to read, as I said, in a more subtle way. You know, what is the nature of this projection? When does it happen? You know, when we get more subtle in our attention, and you know, we're going to catch it sooner. You know, when we start out... We, We've been suffering for a while, and then with hindsight we stop and reflect, and with hindsight we realize, oh, that's why I'm suffering. I was clinging to that, or I got lost in that. Oh, right. Well, with effort, and if it's the effort of formal meditation, there's a good chance that we'll catch it sooner. It's a, a great advantage. If we can learn to read the subtle movements of the mind and, and the sometimes apparent paradoxes of the mind. You know, like, for instance, the apparently contradicting tendencies we have. Now, on one level of the mind, you can be having one motivation, which, you know, maybe it's not very refined at all. Like, you just want to eat. You're in a bad mood, and you've had a hard day, and you're tired, and the idea of getting subtle and doing meditation and being restrained and being patient, or who needs it? I just want to eat a bag of crisps and watch telly, put your feet up. and Yet, at the same time, on another level, in another dimension, another frequency, yeah. it could be that there's a more subtle motivation. You know, like, I really want to practice. I really want to not be driven by these rather superficial motivations. Mm-hmm. These apparently contradictory, conflicting motivations it seems to me anyway, can occur at exactly the same time Mm. on different dimensions. Now, if we work with developing the subtlety of reading our heart and mind, in other words, if we develop formal meditation, there's a possibility that maybe we'll start to see how awareness can expand, how we can actually release out of being identified as these movements of mind towards being the awareness itself in which these movements are taking place. Or as my first meditation teacher, Arjun Tate, said to me when I was living with him, he says, your job in meditation is to learn to recognize the difference between the heart and the activity of the heart, or awareness itself and the activity of awareness. Normally we're caught up in the activity of awareness. Normally we're caught up in the activity of the heart. That's like being caught up in the waves on the top of the ocean. But what about those subtle currents, those more gentle currents 
deeper down in the ocean. Don't they exist at the same time, those more subtle currents and the surface waves? They exist at just the same time in what? In the ocean. Translate as in awareness itself. So if we can feel inspired by the possibility of abiding as awareness itself and not being caught up in any of the gross or subtle currents or the activity or the movement of awareness, if we can feel inspired by that and want to move in that direction, well then formal meditation is really worth developing. And our relationship to these views and opinions and preferences and tendencies that we have we can perhaps come to the insight that we're not talking about getting rid of them. We're not talking about somebody who doesn't have views and opinions on anything. We're not talking about people who don't have preferences. You know, a week or so ago I was referring to the, uh, the fantasy I have anyway of what it might be like for fully awakened arahants living in Burma. You know, would a fully awakened arahant living in Burma, when it comes to breakfast... Would he or she prefer to have oily, salty rice gruel or peanut butter and manuka honey on toast? Now, I suspect, from my experience of living in Burma, that a fully awakened Burmese arahant would have a preference for, if you put in front of them manuka honey and peanut butter on toast and oily, salty rice gruel, they would go for the, the rice gruel. Why? Because there's a preference. The preference is in the body. Now, if you didn't give them the oily, salty rice gruel, you just gave them peanut butter and honey on toast, would they get upset about it? No. Why not? Because they're not attached to their preferences. They're not attached to their views. They're not attached to the the way things appear to be. For those of us uh, who... Uh, not awakened, we have to suffer the consequences of assuming that just because something looks good, it is good. Just because something looks bad or not attractive, that it is bad for us or not attractive. So we're not talking about getting rid of preferences. We're not talking about getting rid of views and opinions. We're talking about a profound change in our relationship to them. And there's a Dhammapada verse, which I, I've often quoted before, which I, I like to reflect on, Dhammapada verse 11 and 12. They go together, and the first stanza says that, mistaking the false for the real and the real for the false, we suffer a life of falsity. Seeing the false as the false and the real as the real, we live in the perfectly real. So our problem is mistaking the false for the real. And the real for the false is mistaking our apparent reality for something that's actual. We suffer the life of falsity. Seeing that which is false is false. Seeing that our views and opinions or the way things appear to be are just that. That's the way things appear to be. Hopefully we then learn to loosen our grip, to loosen the grasp we have on our views and opinions and don't get fooled by the way things appear to be. So cultivating the agility of attention is a virtue that is really worth contemplating. This agility of attention so that we don't get caught up in our projections. Yes, we still have the tendency to project. And 
it's not a matter of you know, trying to stop ourselves from ejecting. It's just that when we suddenly find ourselves getting caught up in a mood, so we don't just blame the object of our projection, but stop and reflect. You know, at what point did I start giving my heart energy away and become weak? You know, this is particularly true when you're perhaps in the company of somebody that you, you really admire, but you haven't yet learned how to admire without giving your heart away. how to admire somebody or a particular quality in somebody without projecting onto them how to without without becoming weak in their company that's a good question it's a really good question sometimes I suspect that our our um, Asian brothers and sisters, when they see how much we uh, become weak and lost and caught up in the traditions and the teachers that we live with, and then only to become disillusioned and despairing when they fall off their pedestal, I think some of our Asian brothers and sisters are a bit puzzled by that because somehow it seems to me that the way their egos are wired, they don't do projection in quite the same way as we do. I think it's got something to do with authority. I, I think it's something to do with how we grow up and, and not many of us these days have truly mature, strong, capable examples of authority to, to look up to and, and, and a lot of us grow up too quick to project authority onto others. And it happens in all sorts of organisations, including monastic organisations where... You know, people fall in love with their teacher and project everything onto them and, until they fall out of love and then they hate them. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of that goes on. And you know, Why does it happen? Because we don't have a well-developed, mindful relationship to authority. But to whatever degree it's happening and where or whenever it's happening, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to learn. It's not an opportunity to judge ourselves for being wrong or to judge each other. Yeah, as I, again, as I was saying this morning at the talk at the mealtime, that when we find ourselves doing it, when we find ourselves having gotten caught up in the way things appear to be, yeah, the skillful thing to do is at least inwardly, and I, you know, I don't mean necessarily outwardly because that might look a bit weird, but inwardly to put our hands together in Anjali and say, welcome, this suffering is what's going to teach me. Yeah. And when we're suffering that can appear like something's going wrong or I failed. It certainly seems like that to me a lot of the time. When I'm suffering, it's like I'm failing. Well, no, that's just the growing point. That's the growing tip. You know, we're having a good time. Well, that's all right. That's nice. We can get refreshed and energized and so on. But you know, if we're not liberated yet, it means sooner or later we're going to have to do some more growing. And the growing tip is when I've reached the point where I can't stand this anymore. Well, when I have the feeling of I can't stand this anymore, it's also sometimes associated with the feeling of something's going wrong. But that's what we're adding to the situation, and we don't have to do it. So this agility of views, learning how to let go of our projections, and sometimes when we are not consistent in our views, you might be accused of, of being weak and wishy-washy. I think you can be passionate, enthusiastic and uh, agile in how we relate to our views and opinions. And I'm um, 
ever since I heard it, I've been rather fond of that that quote that's often referred to from Oscar Wilde, where he says, consistency is the last resort of the unimaginative. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what that speaks to in my mind, but it speaks to something that I, I enjoy. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference between uh, yeah. being inconsistent and lacking commitment or resolve? What's the difference? That's a good question. How do we receive that question? Do we have the agility of awareness? Do we have the, is awareness sufficiently expanded so we can contain the, this, di, this paradox, yeah. this question, yeah, with interest and investigate it in a feeling way? Or are we just defaulting to the way things appear to be and thinking that we've got to choose the right answer and go up to our head and start arguing with ourselves? So. So I think it's always good to end on a question, so I'll end this evening's talk on that. Thank you very much for your attention.